Good morning, Christ Covenant. My name is Gretchen Saffles, and today's scripture reading is John chapter 6, verses 16 through 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to, Decur to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had, had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. Seated. <clears throat> well, I do want to wish uh, all the mothers a happy Mother's Day. And I uh, just want to say that I'm grateful for my mother, for uh, my sweet wife, the mother of my children, and for all of my spiritual mothers uh, through the years, uh, of which there are many, including even some of you. But man, it's, uh, it's crazy to think when we kind of hit these little milestones like Mother's Day, man, what were we doing? I mean, what were you doing Mother's Day a year ago? Uh, it was different than what we're doing now. We, we weren't worshiping together. Uh, it's, just, it's just a bizarre kind of year to remember and think through. Uh, and I think we're going to just kind of continue to do this as we hit these milestones. And as we kind of come here now to the end of, of this storm called COVID-19, uh, I think that we were all last year, and maybe particularly some of you mothers, uh, we were all tested. Some of you endured big tests. I mean, the test of losing a job, the test of getting very ill, maybe the test of losing somebody that you love. Some of the tests uh, were just more like kind of fear or anxiety. What if this happens to me, right? What, what if I lose my job? What if this person I love gets sick? What if I am patient zero, right? I mean, that was kind of my biggest fear. Like, what if... I'm the one that spreads COVID to everybody, right? And some of the tests were a little just more annoying. Um, you know, you can't go to your gym. You can't go to your favorite restaurant. Uh, you always have to remember to wear a mask with you. But the thing about tests, when you're tested, when you endure a trial, a big trial or a little trial, it will either produce in you a greater courage, a greater faith, a greater poise, a greater hope. It'll, it'll make you more of a person, more like God, or it will harden you. It'll make you more anxious. It'll create more skepticism in you. It'll harden you toward other people. It'll harden you toward life. It'll make you more fearful. And I actually think this is a good thing to be doing in this season to be asking yourself the question, what did this test do to me? What did it produce in me? Is it producing in me things that I'm proud of or is it producing in me things that, that really shouldn't be true of me? Now, if you've been with us for a little more than a year now, we've been kind of going in and out of the Gospel of John we uh, have just been looking at a chapter a time. We've been basically doing a series per chapter. And then we'll go look at something else, and then we'll come back. And last week, if you were here, we started John 6. 
Now, the Gospel of John is one of those books where there is a very clear purpose statement. We don't have to ask ourselves, what is John trying to do? What is John trying to accomplish? No, he, he gives this very clear purpose statement in John 20, where he says, I've written these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And in the account we read today, this account in John 6 of Jesus walking on the water very miraculously, these two purposes are on display. I mean, these two purposes are on display big time. John is saying, look, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And I believe that he's also telling us how we can have life in his name. There's, there's a few things that I want you to see in this text today, and we're just going to spend a few minutes on these. But first, I, I want you to see, and I believe John wants you to see, that there is a better Moses. There, there's someone better than Moses who has come. John also wants you to see that there, there is a greater advantage than, than Jesus. There, there's actually someone that's more advantageous to you, maybe a better way to say it, then the presence of Christ. And if these things are true, then there could be a better you. So let's look at these. First of all, a better Moses. As I mentioned, John is trying to say, you got to hear this. You got you to know John's purpose. He is trying to say to you, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the chosen one. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the great deliverer. Last week, if you remember, it was the Passover and Jesus provided this Passover meal for his people in the wilderness. Now, the Passover commemorated this most consequential night in the history of the people of Israel. They had been in Egypt for 400 years, and they were enslaved, and God sent them a deliverer. He sent them Moses. And of course, if you know the story, Moses goes to Pharaoh, and he says, let my people go. Let them go out from this place. Let them worship the Lord. But Pharaoh's heart was hard toward this request. And he, he punished the people all the more. God, in his power, put his power on display and sent a series of plagues to the Egyptian people. And Pharaoh's heart continued to grow hard until this one night, this Passover night, when God sent great judgment, great destruction, death upon the people of Egypt. And the firstborn child of every family in the people of Egypt died. But not in Goshen not among the people of Israel, not among the people of God. God protected them. If they listened to his instruction, if they had faith in the words of the deliverer Moses, if they took the blood of the lamb and rubbed it on the doorposts of their house, then they were spared. And they weren't just spared in their houses that night on this great night of destruction in the land of Egypt. They were feasting. They were celebrating they, they, were, they were celebrating the fact that God was with them, that he protected them, that he had provided for them. And so after this night of great devastation, Moses, his heart was softened. He decided to let the people go to get away from Egypt. God had delivered them. God, through his servant Moses, had delivered the people. And so they left Egypt in a hurry. And it's a much longer story than I can tell right now, but they left Egypt in a hurry. They got out of Egypt. They were heading toward the promised land, and Pharaoh changed his mind. And Pharaoh said, wait a second. That huge slave force was kind of nice. I need to figure out how to get them back. And so he sends his army 
after them and he catches up to them right as they're facing the Red Sea. So this moment of peril, this famous moment of world history, certainly of biblical history, where the people of God, the people of Egypt are facing a sea on one side and the greatest army in the world on the other side. And what happens next really defined the national narrative of the people of Israel for the rest of history. All throughout the rest of the Old Testament, all throughout the rest of the the, the narrative of the people of Israel, there are references to this moment when God used Moses to part the sea and the people walked across on dry land. And after they had crossed and the Egyptian army chased into the sea after them, God destroyed. God brought the waters back upon the Egyptians and flooded them. The the rest of the Bible references this, how God begins the law. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who brought deliverance for you. Throughout the Psalms, there's references to the Lord who parted the waters. There's references to this in the prophets and the writings. There's references throughout the narrative of Israel. I am the Lord your God who brought salvation to you through judgment. We talked about this last week, this this theme that we see all throughout the Bible, God's glory being on display in salvation through judgment. God is showing his glory to the Egyptians in their destruction. God is showing his glory to the people of Israel in their salvation through judgment. There they are on the land looking at the very sea that God had parted for them, looking at the very destruction that they were fearful of just a few hours before when they were caught between the sea and the army. They're there looking at the destruction. They're there looking at the sea, seeing their enemies wiped away, See God, seeing God display his his glory in their judgment and seeing God display his glory in their salvation. God's glory on display in salvation through judgment. So, of course, Moses continues to lead his people toward the promised land, and there's a long story there, but eventually Moses dies. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, the Old Testament is pregnant with all of these things. There's all these energies in the Old Testament that are screaming for some sort of resolution. And and there's a lot of them there. Just one, for example, is the judgment of God. We've been talking about this and the compassion of God, right? The mercy of God and the, the true righteous wrath of God, the deliverance of God and the accountability of God, right? All throughout the Old Testament, we see these two things in tension. In fact, there's a refrain, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But then it says, who will by no means clear the guilty? (laughs) How is God merciful and slow to anger and yet just? The Old Testament ends 
with these two things in tension with one another. The other great tension of the Old Testament that you should ask if you read it is, who will this deliverer be? The promised offspring to Eve that would crush the head of the serpent. The promised descendant to Abraham that would bring a blessing to the whole world. The deliverer in the way of Moses that would bring a true and final delivery. The king that would come in the line of David that would have an eternal kingdom. Who who is this deliverer? Who is this king? Who is this offspring? And the Old Testament ends. So do you see what John is doing here? They've just celebrated Passover. They've just the people of God have just feasted in the wilderness celebrating Passover, a Passover that Jesus has provided, and now the people of God go to the sea, and they are in trouble on the sea. It says when they had rowed three or four miles. Now, this is interesting. The Sea of Galilee is eight miles wide. What does this mean? It means they are in, you know, as my dad would say, they're smack dab in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. They couldn't be any more in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. They couldn't be any more at the dangerous position. Now, if you go to the Sea of Galilee, and I hope that you do, my, my, we, we do a preaching meeting every week, and uh, one of the critiques of the sermon last week from one of the guys was, you know, it seemed like you were selling the Israel trip a little strong, Jason. So, um, so you know, I apologize. But if you go to the Sea of Galilee, you'll look at it and you'll be like, hold on, like, what's going on here? How is there all of these storms on this basically lake? Well, the first thing you have to remember is that they weren't on an ocean liner, right? They, they weren't on some big ship. This is a rowboat or little sailboats that they, they that sailed or they rowed across these seas. And these are small boats. And actually, this is interesting. The Sea of Galilee is actually a stormy little lake. There are two mountains, uh, Mount Hermon, which is kind of near modern-day Damascus up in Syria. And then what's called, you may have heard of this, the Golan Heights. The Golan Heights are just to the east, Mount Hermon's to the north. And these two mountains produce rushing wind that comes down on this little sea. And I've experienced this, not a storm, but just a massive gust of wind that will come through and this will happen and churn up these big time storms. So this is what's going on here. They're rowing across the sea. It's the night and this storm comes upon them. So you see what's happening here. Jesus had just provided the Passover. Now his people are in trouble at the sea. Again, the sea. The sea has an interesting place. Water has an interesting place in the biblical narrative. Water, or the sea, is often a sign of God's judgment against sin. Think about the, na the narrative of the flood, the, 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 no the, of Noah, the narrative of Noah. All the world is sinning. All the world has turned their backs on God. How is God going to destroy the world? How is God going to bring his judgment on the world? How's he going to do it? With water, with the sea, with a flood. The story that I just mentioned, the Egyptians, the enemies of God, their hearts are hard against the things of the Lord. How does God bring his judgment against them? 
the sea, the water. We see this all throughout. In the writings and the prophets, the seas are mentioned as this place of judgment. We see it here. We, we actually see it all the way to the end of the Bible. It's interesting. You know what is said? We, I think we have Revelation 21 here. The New Jerusalem. This is the description of the great hope that we have, this new city, the final city of God, where his kingdom and his presence will be known forever. What does it say? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, some of you might be thinking, I kind of like the sea. Why? Why no sea in the new Jerusalem? You know Why? The sea is a sign of judgment. In the New Jerusalem, there'll, there'll be no judgment. There'll be no storm, right? All of these things will be settled. There'll be no need for the sea in the New Jerusalem. So, all throughout the Bible, you have these accounts of God's people in the sea. This story actually reminds me of another story, a very famous story with Jesus calming the sea. He's on the boat with his disciples. There's a storm that, that blows up, same kind of place, Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is asleep. And I love this. His disciples wake him up and they say this. This is from Matthew 8. Save us, Lord. We are perishing. There's a sense where they know what's going on in the sea. Not only is what they're saying right about their actual condition on the physical sea, but they're, what they're saying is symbolic of their true condition before the justice of God. We have a problem here. We have a problem called our own sin. They were indeed perishing, and they needed a delivery. So here are the disciples they are out at sea. It's dark. There's a storm. They're rowing. They are perishing. God's people are in trouble at the sea. And God sends a deliverer. Here comes Jesus. And he's walking on the sea. And he's not just walking on the sea. He's walking through a storm on the sea. Now, you can infer that they were terrified from the storm. I mean, imagine that situation. It's pitch black, it's dark, it's night, storm, you're rowing a boat on a sea. But it doesn't tell us that. It actually says when they saw Jesus walking on the sea, then they were afraid. And I think this teaches us something about the fear of the Lord. You know, people struggle with this notion, the fear of the Lord. Am I, am I really supposed to fear the Lord? What does it mean to fear the Lord? And I think the best way I can describe it to you shortly is it's, it's a fear of importance and it's a fear of weight. In, in a sense, it doesn't, doesn't speak to our relationship with the Lord, in a very real sense, the, the person that I fear most in the world is Paige, right? My own wife. And, and it's a fear. It's, it, it, that fear is actually caused by the relationship that we have. It's not a deterrent to the relationship we have. It's actually brought about because of the relationship we have. And, and what, what I'm describing there is what I call a fear of importance, Right? There's no one more important to me than Paige. 
And therefore, I don't want to do anything to hurt her. You know, I don't, I don't, want, anything, I don't want anything that would hurt our relationship. That's why I care so deeply about her opinion of me. You know, if one of you is upset with me, I'll get over it pretty quick. But if she gets upset with me, oh, I can't have that. I fear her. That's a fear of importance. There's also a sense here of, of the fear of weight. You know, the Hebrew word for glory. How do you understand the glory of God? The Hebrew word for glory is the word kavod. And you know what kavod means? It means weight. God's glory is his weight. It's his density. It's his weightiness. Fear the weightier thing, right? If, if you're in a room and there's a spider and you're afraid of the spider, if a lion came into the same room, you wouldn't be afraid of the spider anymore, right? You, you always fear the weightier thing. These, these disciples, they're out in the boat rowing across. It's dark. There's a storm. And all of a sudden, a bigger storm, a weightier thing comes up. Jesus, the Lord of the storm, the one who is over the storm, the one who is weightier even than the storm. So do you see what's going on here? Jesus has just given his people a Passover meal, and now the people of God are at trouble at the sea. They're in trouble at the sea. And just like Moses, Jesus does something amazing. God used Moses to part the sea, but Jesus is a better Moses. He can walk over the sea. He's the Lord of the sea. He's weightier than the storm. He's a greater Moses. Do you see what John's trying to do here? He is the Messiah. He's a greater Moses. But who is he? Well, the answer is in the text, but it can be a little hard to see. Look at verse 20. Now, my Bible reads here, It is I, do not be afraid. It is I, do not be afraid. Now, the Greek for it is I, and look, being a Bible translator, taking Greek is really hard. So if ever I want to give you a little nuance on a translation, that doesn't mean that I think these translators are bad. They're brilliant. They're amazing. But the Greek, the literal Greek for it is I is the ego me, which literally is translated I am. Jesus walks up to them and says, I am, do not be afraid. I am, do not be afraid. You see what's going on here? Jesus had just given his people the Passover meal. Now his people are in trouble at the sea, and he's the Lord of the sea. He's the better Moses. And he comes up to them and says, I am. Remember when Moses met with God at the burning bush? And he said, who am I to tell them that sent me to you? And what does God say? God says to Moses, tell them my name is I am. I am. Do not be afraid. Jesus is saying, the reason I'm the Lord of the sea, the reason I'm the better Moses is I'm actually the person who spoke to Moses in the first place. I am the one who sent Moses. I am. 
do not be afraid. Now, a lot of people kind of are confused at this name, I am. What does this mean? To me, it's, it's, it's the most precious name of God, I am. I exist. I am God. Every one of you, you know what you are? You're dependent. You're dependent. You wouldn't be here, right? Just let's all do this real quick. You depend on air, okay? No air, no oxygen. Everybody in this room would be dead in just a couple of minutes. You are a dependent people. You depend on your parents. You depend on water. You depend on food. You depend on all sorts of things. You are not self-existent, but God is. He is truly independent. He is truly I am, as Aquinas said, he is the first cause. He is the immovable mover. Every breath you take is granted to you by him. Everything depends on him, even storms. And in the middle of storms, he can walk up and say, I am. In the middle of storms, he can calm them and say, peace, be still. I am. Do not be afraid. Now, what's interesting about this Remember what God said to Moses at the burning bush. He's appearing to Moses at the burning bush, and God says to Moses, don't come near me. It's too holy, right? Don't come near me. Take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. But here, what is Jesus doing? Now the I am is coming near, and he even gets in the boat don't you see this? Jesus is the great I am who can come near to us. The very presence of God, the very power of God, the Lord of the storm who can come near to us. Jesus, the great I am who comes near. He's better than Moses. In fact, he's the one who spoke to Moses, the I am who comes near. Which brings me to my second point. Something even more advantageous than Jesus, something that's a greater advantage to you. Now, Leon Morris, who's a helpful New Testament scholar, suggests that with the seven signs of John, John is very famous for its series of sevens. There's these seven statements, seven signs that Jesus does. But with the seven signs, he says there are seven corresponding discourses. Now, some of them are kind of obvious. So, for example, Last week, we looked at John 6, 1 through 14, the feeding of the multitude. That's a sign of Jesus. The corresponding discourse to that is actually the passage we're going to look at next week in John 6, 22 through 59, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life, which is also one of these statements. But Leon Morris says of this sign, Jesus walking on the water, that the discourse is in John 7. And particularly John 7, 37 through 39. Let me read it for you. It says, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit whom those believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. This story, and, and I believe this to be true, reminds us, us now, on the other side of the spirit being given, 
of the promise of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus got into the boat with them, what does it say? They were glad. They were immediately on the other side. They felt the assurance of Jesus. They understood the presence of God. They were safe. The weightier thing was with them. But the problem with Jesus is that he's not with them all the time. In a sense, the, the most wonderful thing about Jesus and the problem with Jesus is this, is that he became flesh. Jesus became a man. He, he became flesh like us to identify with us. When Jesus comes, he is spatial. He is not everywhere at all times. He is in one place or another. So when Jesus is away from them, they're terrified because he's not with them. Don't you see that the, the great thing about Jesus is when he's on the boat, everything's okay, you're glad. The problem of Jesus is that he wasn't with them on the boat some of the time. But there is a third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God, who has, we learn proceeds from the Father and proceeds from the Son, the Spirit of God whom Jesus sent to indwell at all times the life of every believer. When Jesus is on the boat, everything's great. But what's the problem? Jesus has ascended. Jesus is not on the boat right now. Which is why Jesus says, hear this from John 16, it is to your advantage. It's more advantageous to you that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus says, it's actually better for you that I go because when I go, someone, namely the Holy Spirit, is coming who's actually going to be more advantageous to you, to your relationship with God, to your whole life. And I don't think Christians really understand this. Some of you may have heard me say this before, but I don't know if we have any Family Feud fans out there. Great game show. 100 people surveyed. You know, name something that you would find in a bathroom, right? Name something that you put on a salad, right? These are, these are Family Feud. But if they ever had the question, 100 Christians surveyed, 100 Christians surveyed, would you rather have the Holy Spirit in you or would you rather have Jesus with you, right? Would you, would you rather have the Holy Spirit in you or would you just have Jesus kind of around you, right? Now, I think most Christians would say, Psh, <laughs> well, of course, I'd rather have Jesus with me than the Holy Spirit in me. I mean, I don't even know what that means, right? But Jesus himself says, no, listen, I'm leaving. I'm doing this great work. I'm going to reconcile you to the Father, then I'm leaving, but I am going to send a paraclete. I am going to send this helper. I am going to send my spirit who will indwell you, who will be with you, who will be near you, who will always be on the boat with you. It is to your advantage that I go. You may say, what does this ministry look like? Jesus goes on to explain here in John 16, it says, when he comes, 
He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, what does this mean? Well, let's look at those three things just really quick. The Holy Spirit comes to convict us of sin. And this is such a great ministry. You will deceive yourself. You'll deceive yourself for the rest of your life, thinking that you haven't offended God, thinking that you haven't done anything to God, until the Holy Spirit comes upon your heart, and all of a sudden, the eyes of your heart are open, and you see. You see who you really are before a holy God. This is a ministry. This is a gift. The Holy Spirit of God. I mean, just think about it this way. If Jesus was with you at all times, would you ever sin? This would be really hard to. This is the ministry. This is the promise of the Holy Spirit. There's, there's a conviction that he brings. It's love. It's, it's kindness. It's the mercy of God that by his spirit, he brings conviction to you. It says he convicts us concerning righteousness because I go to the Father. Now, what does that mean? Here's what it means. You know what the ministry of the Holy Spirit namely is? It namely, the Holy Spirit, he namely points you to Jesus. He convicts you concerning righteousness because I go to the Father. One of the Holy Spirit's main jobs is that he reminds you, in a sense, who Jesus is, what he is like. He brings to mind his word. He brings to mind his character. He points you to Jesus. Jesus has gone to the Father, but he convicts you. The Holy Spirit points you to true righteousness, to the person of Christ. And then finally, he convicts us concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings these constant reminders that there will be a finality to this, that Jesus will return, that he will condemn all evil, that he will call all who have looked to him to life in his everlasting kingdom. And sometimes we so desperately need those reminders. I need that ministry of the Holy Spirit, to be reminded that this is not ultimate, that my life here is not ultimate. No, my, my true life is with God. My true identity is with God. The Holy Spirit convicts us of that. He reminds us of these things. You see, the Holy Spirit is always on the boat with you. Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the, the true and better Moses has come, Jesus and he has sent us someone even more advantageous than himself, the Holy Spirit of God. And, and if this is true, there really can be a better you. You know, I began the sermon talking about trials. What do trials produce in you? What do storms produce in you? Are you the kind of person that has come through trials and storms with more courage, with more poise, with more joy? Is that true of you? What if you could be, right? What if all difficulty could produce in you was strength and courage and poise? What if you could be the kind of person that was filled with hope, that was filled with life, that was filled with joy? And, and, and the answer of Scripture is you can be. This is God's plan for you. But how? How do you overcome anxiety and fear? How do you overcome hard-heartedness in a sinister and evil and 
terrifying world. How do you overcome these kinds of fears? And you know what the answer is? You have to have a better fear. (laughs) How do you overcome fear? You have to have a better fear. You have to have another fear. Jesus came near to them in the middle of the storm. It's the middle of the night. There's a storm all around them. They're rowing a boat, and Jesus comes up, and he says, I am, and they're terrified. But he says, I am. I am the one who comes near. Do not be afraid. How do you overcome fear? Have a better fear. Don't be afraid of the storm. I am, says Jesus. You know, when God gave people the Ten Commandments, this is Exodus 20, the mountain was shaking, there was thunder, there was flashes of lightning, it was dark, there was a storm on the mountain, if you will, and the people were afraid, the people were terrified, and you know what Moses says to them? Listen to this, this is John, I'm sorry, this is Exodus 20, 20, Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. (laughs) Did you catch that? What does Moses command? Don't be afraid, be afraid so you won't sin. But the way to overcome this fear is that the fear of the Lord would be with you. And this is the kind of fear that leads you away from anxiety, from, away from every storm. This is the kind of fear that you can truly overcome. Now, in one sense, that's terrifying. If God really comes close to you, if God is really coming near your life, then guess what? You can't be in control of your life. Then guess what? You can't be a hypocrite anymore because you can't fool God You can't put on a show. You can't be in love with yourself all the time. If God really comes close to you, and let me just tell you, this is is the problem of this age. And we talked about this this week in our little teaching meeting. You know the story of Narcissus? Narcissus, it's an ancient story this beautiful man, and one day he was walking through the wood and he saw his own reflection in a pond. And you know what he did for the rest of his life? He sat there and looked at the pond. He'd found someone so beautiful. He just wanted to look at this person all the time. They were so interesting, they were so special. And nothing else could enter in. Narcissus, this is a famous story. This is what's happened to us. Only now, the the, the problem, the scary thing is you don't have to go to the woods to find the pond. The pond sits in your back pocket at all the time. And you can say, look how interesting I am. (laughs) Look how neat I am. Look how smart I am. Look how cool I am. And this is the very thing that's keeping you from really letting the Lord into your boat because when he comes in, he takes over. You can't be in control all the the more. 
It's, it's not about you anymore. You're not going to be the captain. You don't get to steer. You don't get to row. No, it's his. You can't be a hypocrite. You can't just present one thing here but really be this. You actually have to be a genuine person because you can't fool God. And that's terrifying. But that's, that's the way to overcome all the other fears. Will you let the I am, right, into the boat? Will, will you humble yourself enough to, to let God come in, to let him come close? The greater fear. How do you overcome the fears and anxiety of this life? How do you come over the fears? Oh, what are they going to think of me? What are they going to do? Am I going to lose my job? Is this going to happen? You've got to get the bigger thing, the more dense thing in the boat. You, you've got to, how do you overcome fear? You overcome fear with a better fear. And Jesus can fear you from all the anxieties of this life. You'll forget yourself. You'll forget yourself. You'll forget these pressures. You'll be so focused on the Lord. Jesus frees us. He frees us from every storm. He frees, he's the Lord of the storm. He's the weightier thing. He, he can free us of all the storms we faith. He can even free us from our own sin. Now you might say, how does Jesus do that? How does Jesus free us from sin? Well, Jesus, as you see, was the greater Moses. He was the one that he didn't need to part the sea. He could overcome the sea. He was the better Noah. He was the one that didn't have to just endure the storm. He could literally speak to the storm and say, peace be still. But you know what Jesus also was? He was also the better Jonah. In fact, Jesus even said when he was asked for another sign, I will only give you the sign of Jonah. Now, this is interesting. Most of the Old Testament characters <laughs> endured the storm. They conquered the storm, but not Jonah. In fact, Jonah was ravaged by the storm. He was thrown into the storm. He was destroyed by the storm. The, the reason that Jesus can, fear you, can, can heal you, can save you from your own sin and from the death that you deserve is actually that he became Jonah for you. He was thrown into this sea. This is the message of the cross, that Jesus literally was ravaged. He was, he was thrown into the water of God's judgment. He was put to death on your behalf and on my behalf. And just as Jonah was delivered, he too was delivered so that he could deliver you. And if you believe that, and if the Holy Spirit of God is drawing you and speaking to you, and I believe that he is to many of you right now, then that will totally change your life. Won't you let Jesus in your boat? Won't you look to him? Won't you give him control? The great I am has come near. I am. Do not be afraid. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be the people that overcome fear, not because we're so strong or wise or witty, but we would be the people that overcome fear because we have a better fear, because we hold on to the weightier thing. Father, may we look to Jesus. 
the I am who comes near, and may he come near to our lives. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, stay close in our lives and guide us and convict us and remind us of his character and the hope that we can have in him. And may you do this work in our hearts today by faith. Amen.